for that prayer from Jared and Emma Grace. And let's pray together to start. Christ, that is our heart. Man, we want you to be magnified. No words of mine, no talent of any of us uh, is enough to merit your favor. And yet, you died for our sins and you rose again. You changed our lives. And we want you to be magnified. We owe you everything. Lord, help us not to be formed by feelings. Help us hold fast what is true. And may today the truth be proclaimed and may it encourage hearts and strengthen us for the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start here with a quote for the holiday season upon us from John Adams, one of our founding fathers. He wrote a letter to his wife, Abigail, in July of 1776. And he said this, I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. Wow. Now what date, what holiday do you think John Adams was referring to there? What do you think? I've started with a trick question for you. It's not July 4th. It's July 2nd he was referring to today. So we should be celebrating today according to John Adams. Now, poor John was a little off because they actually signed the Declaration of Independence today, July 2nd, but they did not publish it until July 4th. That's why that date is on it and that's why we celebrate that day. But, gentlemen, if this gives you a good excuse to go buy another round of fireworks so you can set them off today and Tuesday, just tell your wife that's how John Adams would have wanted it, okay? You can have another cookout, you can have all the celebration today and on the 4th. But regardless of the day, uh, he was not wrong about the significance of the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the impact uh, that it would have for many years to come and the celebrations that would happen even up to today. That day is a day that significantly altered history, right? Certainly the history of our country, but also our personal histories, right? Would we be sitting here today were it not for that Declaration of Independence and the people like Adams and many more who in the history of our country fought for the freedom? But for all that July 4th has changed about our lives, in spite of all that these guys did, our founding fathers, in spite of their legacy, ultimately they passed off the scene. And one by one, they died. Adams was one of the longest surviving ones. Here's a picture of his tomb. But he, too, passed on July 4th, ironically, 1826, the same day as Thomas Jefferson passed away. For all that they did to influence us today, we know that their work can be put aside. Their statues can rust or they can be taken down. They can be ultimately forgotten. In fact, most of you here today, unless you're a weird history nerd like myself, you probably couldn't tell me five things about our second president, John Adams, could you? The only thing we Americans seem to know about him or other founding fathers is what we hear in a Broadway production or if we happen to not fall asleep during a high school history class, right? But there is another day of far more lasting significance than even July 4th, a day that's so significant that it changed our entire weekly schedule. In fact, every person in this country is impacted every single week by this day, not just once a year like July 4th, but every week they encounter a celebration of this day. And they likely have a day off work, whether or not they celebrate it. Now, what is this day? Easter Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Talk about a day when the world turned upside down. 
Every Sunday, when we gather here, we are celebrating the resurrection, and we recognize the significance of this day. It's changed our weekly schedule. And we rightly focus on it on Easter. That's an appropriate time to focus on it. But every Sunday should be a day we gather on the Lord's Day to celebrate the risen Lord. He is alive. He is risen from the tomb. But it doesn't just change our week-to-week schedule. It also changes, well, everything else. It changes our very soul, our destiny. It changes our purpose, our hope. It's what gets us up in the morning. It's changed everything about us, this resurrection. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 is where we'll be this morning. Chase uh, preached on the crucifixion, John chapter 19. Now we're here at the resurrection. And after six months, we've arrived here, the climactic moment of the gospel of John. Yes, I talked about John 13, my last sermon, being a climactic moment, but it doesn't compare. Even the shock of Jesus washing his disciples' feet doesn't compare to the shock of Jesus dead in the grave coming to life again. That's a shock. And yet... Like John 13, it doesn't seem to shock us very much because for many of us, we've grown up with this story, right? I mean, we've grown up hearing about Jesus dying for our sins, Jesus rising from the dead, and perhaps we've lost some of the amazement, the shock value of this chapter before us. One Easter some years ago, a friend of mine and myself, this friend was from the Middle East, uh, studying here in town, and we were watching a video of the life of Jesus. And we got to the resurrection scene and the the camera showed the dead body there of Jesus and it kind of panned around and came back and there the body was gone, the grave clothes were empty. And I'll never forget what my Middle Eastern friend said. He said, whoa, where did he go? Where'd he go? Which is a great question to ask. For him, it was a shock. I mean, this this guy was dead. He was lying there just, just moments ago. And now the grave clothes are empty. Where did he go? This was a twist. This story likely is not even allowed to be told in his country. So for him, it was so shocking. And I want to recapture some of that shock and awe and how much the resurrection of Christ has changed our lives. But maybe you're sitting there wondering, man, why are we putting so much emphasis in this study on John, on all the simple truths of the gospel? I mean, in this season of our church, shouldn't we focus on more practical truths or maybe go a little bit deeper? I mean, we've heard about the crucifixion. We've heard about the resurrection. Why are we doing this? Because this is the center of the Gospel of John. This is the center, in fact, of the whole Bible. This is the center of all of human history. So it must be the center of our lives as well, right? We must center ourselves on this story and not just use it like, oh, this is the ticket that gets me into the amusement park. Uh, I believe the Gospel. I'm into the Christian life, but then I can deposit my ticket in the nearest trash bin and just kind of forget about it. That's sometimes how we act with the Gospel. But instead, the gospel should be the lens, the glasses through which we see all of our lives and without which we can't see it all. We're lost without this gospel. That's how important, that's how central it should be. And besides, many of us will very easily watch our favorite TV show over and over again or our favorite movie over and over again, maybe read our favorite book series over and over Some of you are are really strange and you find your new favorite song and man, you just listen to that song a hundred million times. Once you find it, you just like it that much. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Uh, But we repeat things over and over again that we like, that we enjoy. So certainly we can spare some time to reread the amazing truth that's at the center of our lives, the center of our hopes, the most amazing day in all of history, the resurrection. So put on some fresh eyes this morning, take your behold glasses out, and look with me at John chapter 20, and let's read this as if for the first time through the eyes of these eyewitnesses, a woman named Mary Magdalene, and two men named Peter 
and one named John who goes by the nickname in this passage, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Look at John chapter 20. Let's start reading in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went out and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. What an amazing passage here. Talking about conversations with Jesus. I love this conversation between Mary and Jesus. It's just so sweet, and I hope it'll be encouragement to you. But like Chase's message last week on the impact of the crucifixion, we could similarly come up with many reasons and and with, with a long list of all that the resurrection has changed about our lives, couldn't we? I mean, we heard from Glenn how the resurrection changed his personal life, and I'm sure many more of you could share stories of that. We all have amazing stories of how Jesus came into our lives and changed us if you believed in him. It's encouraging to hear those things. But I want to focus on three particular things that this passage indicates that's changed about our lives because of the resurrection. Three things, and they all have to do with our emotions, our emotions. So let me ask you, how are you feeling today? What are your emotions like as you sit here today with us? What are you feeling? Maybe you say, please don't ask me that question. You're personally prying into my life. This is not a therapy session, and I'm not feeling anything right at the moment. Okay, fine. But but evaluate your heart. Are you joyful? Are you excited about what God is doing? Are you rejoicing in everything? Or perhaps are you a little down in the dumps? Maybe you're feeling kind of crummy. You're feeling a little hopeless, perhaps. Despair? The resurrection changes so much about our lives, it even can change our emotions. It can make discouraged people encouraged. It can give hope to hopeless people. It can make negative people optimistic. Optimism, there's the word for us this morning. If we put all these three things that the resurrection changes about our lives together, we're going to see that it makes us optimistic people. Are you an optimistic person? Are you a glass half full kind of person? Are you a glass half empty kind of person? 
or perhaps a glass has fallen on the floor and shattered into a million pieces sort of person. I don't know. Are you optimistic? Are you a negative Nelly? Now, I don't know what Nelly did to deserve being called a negative Nelly. Maybe we should change it to something else. I don't know. But do you feel the weight of sorrow and, and, and just the negativity of life weighing you down? How are you feeling? Well, the Christian has always a great reason for optimism. Jesus is alive, so you can be optimistic. The resurrection should make us all optimistic people. Yes, life is very wearying, and yes, life is very, very hard. And yes, we're in this pastoral search process with some uncertainties, and and we're in the middle of summer, and it's hot, and the kids are out of school, and they're getting antsy, and yes, maybe your vacation was ruined, I don't know, or maybe your relationships are strained. And yet I still say, be optimistic. Cheer up. How could I possibly say such a thing? The simple reason is that Jesus is alive. And let me give you three reasons for optimism this summer. Three things the resurrection changes about us from John chapter 20. First off, the resurrection changes confusion to clarity. Confusion to clarity. We live in a confusing time, don't we? I mean, who do we believe in our time of information or disinformation, social media, the lies out there. How do we navigate this sad and and twisted confusion over gender in our society as we seek to raise our kids faithfully? Or maybe it's confusion from our own personal doubts and questions. Is Christianity true or is it not? How could the true faith produce such hate? How could the supernatural be true when we live in such an age of scientific advancement? Or maybe it's something a little bit further deeper in your heart. How could God really love me if I am so bad? Or even deeper, how could God be loving if my life is so bad? Well, let me clarify these questions for you. Let me just put them in clarity for you. Jesus is alive. What? How does that solve my questions? Jesus rose from the dead. Can't be that simple. My questions are complex. My life is very difficult. I perhaps wonder if it's God's fault. And I just say Jesus is alive, as if that solves everything. Now, I don't mean to minimize anyone's question here today, but what I want to do is maximize the truth that Jesus is alive and that that changes our lives. And that gives us clarity. It gives us truth, something to hold on to when our world is full of chaos something to stake our lives on. Because the truth clarifies, doesn't it? That's what Andrew taught us over many years. Truth clarifies. And here's the central truth of the Bible. Jesus came, he died for our sins, and he rose again. He wins. He is alive. So let's look at this passage, and let's see how confusion changes to clarity in the lives of some of these eyewitnesses. First, I want you to see Mary. Poor Mary Magdalene, she twice says, I don't know, in 2 and 13. And then she doesn't even recognize Jesus in her state of confusion. She comes to the tomb, she runs back, she gets the disciples. Jesus is gone, his body's not there. And even when angels try to speak to her, she's still confused, hopeless, crying uncontrollably, until one word is spoken to her. Mary, he calls her name, and her confusion melts away. More on that in a minute. But notice also the confusion of Peter and John. They run frantically to the tomb after Mary tells them the body's gone, with John, by the way, beating Peter in the foot race to the tomb, he might add, and record for all of history. I like that, that he adds that he beat him. 
Uh, But notice how specific the text is here in these opening verses. Who got there first? Here's what they saw. Here's where the linen cloths were. The face cloth is folded up. Why is this passage so specific? Why so many details? Well, the Bible often gives us a lot of details in very key moments just to kind of clarify things for us, just to kind of slow down and emphasize things. But I think John gave us these details to bring us clarity in a few ways. First of all, he really wants us to know that he was an eyewitness of this empty tomb. He saw the tomb himself. In fact, verse 8 says he saw and believed. He saw it and he believed. Now, verse 9 says they were still confused about how the scriptures were being fulfilled. But man, John saw that empty tomb and he believes. He also emphasizes back in chapter 19, verse 35, that he saw the crucifixion. He was there. He saw the spear be put into Jesus' side. And he also tells us that Mary Magdalene was there at the crucifixion. Both of these people, they saw Jesus die in excruciatingly painful death. They weren't confused. They didn't just think Jesus died, but really he didn't. No, they were eyewitnesses to the crucifixion and they were eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. They saw it firsthand. And now John invites us to come and see and see as he records for us what his own eyes saw. And one thing his eye saw was the grave clothes. So, so why such an emphasis on these grave clothes? Well, it's showing us that Jesus' body was not taken away by grave robbers. I mean, why would grave robbers come and take the body but not take the, the garments? They, they would have been expensive. They could have sold those things. And in fact, what grave robbers would take the time to fold up the face cloth right there and have it nice and neat? Something else happened here, something strange, something miraculous, as if Jesus' body just, just rose right through those garments. And yet he still took the time to fold up the face cloth and and put it there on the side. Which tells you kids, if Jesus had time to make his bed when he rose from the dead, you have time as well, okay? So just just that little tidbit there. But it's, it's mysterious. Something is going on here. This is not a grave robbing. This is not anything else. Something miraculous has happened here. And all of this is to bring us to John's overall purpose in this gospel. John's going to spend the rest of the chapter talking about Thomas and seeing and believing, which Rob will get to next week in next week's sermon. But then in verses 30 and 31, we get to the purpose of the Gospel of John. Andrew mentioned this from the very beginning of our series back in January. Look down at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I love this. John's giving us this purpose. He's writing this, his eyewitness testimony, what he himself saw and what the other disciples saw, he's recording it so that you and I would believe in this Jesus. Now, many people speculate that this was an older John writing this. And we're fairly certain John was one of the last living eyewitnesses. He lived a long time. And in his later life, he would likely write this book, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. And it's as if he's writing this gospel after the other gospels have been written in order to pass on the truth to the next generation. No doubt Christians were coming up, growing up, and, and they didn't see Jesus. Gentiles, they were in other places during this time. And John wants to write down for them what he saw so that they can have confidence. This is the real deal. I saw this with my own eyes. And that this gospel has been faithfully passed down to us today so that we, through the gospel of John, can truly behold Jesus. We can't see him with our physical eyes, but we can behold him in these words and we can have confidence, enough confidence to believe, to stake our lives on this resurrection. That's so important because we do live in a confusing time. 
And I don't doubt that today here, there are many of you who experience doubts of one kind or another. Maybe some of the questions I mentioned, maybe others. We all go through that season. And perhaps right now you're wondering if the Bible is true or if God is good. And that's why this gospel is so, so helpful for us. In fact, if I could ask you to do just one thing, if you're wrestling with questions, if you're wrestling with with whether or not this is true, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read the Gospel of John. But first things first, check all your bags before you read it. Put aside all your preconceptions, maybe even how you grew up, maybe some of the trappings of cultural Christianity that get so confusing, and just read the Gospel of John asking God to open your eyes to Jesus. If he is real, reveal yourself to me, God. Reveal Jesus for who he really is with fresh eyes as if for the first time, checking all your bags and just seeing Jesus. And when you come to this point, the resurrection, I think you'll be encouraged. You'll be amazed because there is no other alternative to explain what happened here other than the fact that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. I mean, why would these disciples go from hiding and running away and terrified to bold witnesses to the fact that Jesus is alive? They died for this. Why would they die for something that they made up or hallucinated? They truly believed that Jesus died and rose again. And that's something we can stake our lives on. So I encourage you, please, just read the Gospel of John or any of the Gospels for that matter, but this one especially written for the next generation, passing on truth so that we can come and see Jesus as he really is. Now, if you're already a believer, I encourage you, if maybe you're not in a season of doubts and discouragement, I want you just to be encouraged, be strengthened. You can have confidence in this gospel that you built your life on. We serve a living Savior. But pass this encouragement to somebody else. Maybe start a Bible study with somebody you know is struggling, neighbors, friends, family members. This would be a great thing to study with them and to show them who Jesus is. So the resurrection brings a clarity to our confusion. But how else does it change us? How else does the resurrection change us? Well, it changes our despair to delight. Our despair to delight. Now, my class is groaning because I'm using emojis, which, man, they finally convinced me to stop using them so much in Sunday school class, but I had to work them in here because we're talking about emotions, and we're going from weeping and despair to joy. So bear with me, class. Bear with me. But let's zero in a little more closely on Mary's encounter with Christ, verses 11 through 18. Look back there if you would. And notice how many times it talks about Mary weeping. She's beside herself. Some people wonder, why didn't she recognize Jesus at first? Or why didn't the angels face her when they, when they spoke to her and she saw them? Well, I think it's because her eyes are, are, are blinded by the tears. She's in agony. She's in despair. This savior that she followed is dead. And not only that, now all of a sudden his tomb has been desecrated. Somebody's taken his body. And then the angels say to her in verse 13, woman, why are you weeping? And then she turns around, she sees Jesus, and he repeats the question, but adds another one. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for? That's a great question. That's a question Jesus asks all of us. He's been asking throughout this whole gospel, who are you looking for? All the way back in chapter one, he asked the disciples following him this question, what are you seeking? And he said, come and see. And now here, he asks it again, and all throughout this gospel, some have been seeking him just for the miracles and the signs, and they've, they faded away, they left him. Some have been seeking to kill him, and they were successful, or were they? And some have been truly seeking him in faith to believe in him. And so he asks us all, who are you looking for? Come to me, come and see me, and find in me all that you've been seeking. You won't be disappointed. 
So what does Mary do? Well, in all her confusion, she says, just point me in the right direction. I'll go get the body. I'll go bring it back. And she thinks he's the gardener, which I find that ironic and kind of funny. I mean, where have we seen gardens before in Scripture? We know this was a garden tomb. Chapter 19 tells us that. She thinks he's the gardener. We've seen that image before in Scripture. We saw it at the very beginning. Humanity got our start there in the Garden of Eden. We also had our fall there in the Garden of Eden. Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus used garden imagery in chapter 15, as Jeremy preached on, where he described his father as the vine dresser, the gardener who prunes us so well, Jesus being the vine. It's fitting that where death came in the Garden of Eden, now new life comes in another garden. Where Jesus' death began being arrested in one garden, Jesus is, is resurrected in another one. It's powerful imagery here. But in the midst of all this confusion, all these tears, Jesus says one word. And he says to her, what does he say? Mary. He calls her name in verse 16. And what's her response? What does she say? She says, Rabboni. Which doesn't just mean a teacher. It's something more like my teacher, my dear teacher. And what does she do? Well, she must try to cling on to Jesus, fall at his feet, give him a hug or something. Because he responds and he says, do not cling to me. Now, do not read this like maybe your response when your kids are climbing all over you and you've just had enough and you say, no touchy, please stop climbing on me. I do not want you to cling to me. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Uh, picture instead a tender savior who's drying her tears and calling her by name. Picture him more like Aslan when he resurrects in the Chronicles of Narnia and Lucy and Susan, they fall all over him and they're just joyful and excited and, and Aslan laughs with them. I can hear Jesus in this scene kind of giving a laugh as he says something like, whoa, hold on, Mary, it's good to see you too. But I've got work to do. Don't hold me back. And you have work to do as well, he says to her. Well, what does he have to do? Well, he says, I have to ascend to my father, which he will do some 40 days later. He will sit at the father's right hand. He will take his place of honor until time is done and he rules and reigns over all. And that's where he's at today, preparing a place for us. What does Mary have to do? Well, she needs to take a message. Who? To who does she need to take this message? Notice what he calls them. He says, take a message to my brothers. Now, that's a tender name for guys who just abandoned you a couple chapters before when you were arrested. They all left him, except for John. John was the only one there at the crucifixion. And then there's Peter, who denied that he even knew Jesus three times. Can you picture Peter running to the tomb earlier in this chapter? He's excited. Is Jesus alive? But he's also maybe a little nervous. Is Jesus going to be mad? We're going to end that cliffhanger right there. We're going to come back to Peter at the very end of our series in chapter 21. A little cliffhanger there. Just hold tight. I'll return to that at the end of July. But these guys had abandoned him, and yet he still calls them my brothers. Well, that's encouraging for us. So what is his message? He says, I want you to take this message to my brothers, he says this, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. There's some powerful encouragement there. Look at all these personal pronouns. Everything's finished. Everything's accomplished. I'm going to be ascending back to my father, just as I predicted. I'm going to be sending the spirit. I won't leave you as orphans. And by the way, this father I'm going back to, he's your father too. This God, he's your God. What a precious passage full of encouragement full of reasons for optimism, full of reasons to turn our despair to delight. Maybe you're like Mary this morning. You're frantic, you're desperate, you're confused, hopeless, crying, weeping. 
Maybe not outwardly you put on a good face, but inwardly you're in turmoil and despair. But hear the voice of Jesus speaking your name. He knows you by name. Not only that, but Psalm 56, 8 says he counts our tears. He puts each tear we shed into his bottle. He tracks them all. Every tear Mary shed, every tear you shed. He knows you. He's your savior, your brother, your friend. His father is your father. God is your God. You're loved, you're owned, you're known, you're precious. He knows you by name. Now that's a cause for joy. For my dear sister who perhaps today is feeling lonely in this holiday week because of death of loved ones or estrangement, just lonely. Let me tell you though, Jesus knows your name, dear sister. He knows who you are. You're loved by him. So rejoice. Maybe the man struggling today with intense anxiety and uncertainty for the future. How am I going to provide for my family? But I can't show it. I've got to be strong on the outside. Jesus knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your feelings of fear. And he loves you. He sees you. He owns you. So rejoice. For perhaps my older brother or sister who wakes up every day with intense pain, can't seem to find relief, or, or maybe doesn't wake up at all because you just can't sleep because of this pain, Jesus knows your name as well. He knows your pain. He loves you. And one day, because of his resurrection, he will resurrect your pain-filled body as well. And there will be no more pain. And there will be no more tears. Rejoice. Or perhaps my brother or sister who's struggling with some secret shame over unwanted or, or, or warped sexual desires, or maybe you just don't feel at home in your own body. You don't feel like you belong. You don't feel at rest. You feel alone. Jesus knows your name as well. He knows every feeling you feel. He calls you his brother, his sister, no matter what you have done. If you believed in him, God is your father, and one day he's going to set all things right, including your body, your feelings. So rejoice. Maybe for the brother or sister who's distraught over the state of the world, everything's falling apart, what's going to happen? Jesus knows you too, and he knows that feeling. And he is just as much alive and active today as he was here at the resurrection. He is in control. He has a plan. The world is not going to hell in a handbasket. The whole world is in his hands. And one day he will return to bring all things to newness. He resurrected and he will resurrect us as well. And he will bring us a new heaven and a new earth. So rejoice, dear ones. Rejoice. He is alive Listen to his words of prediction back in chapter 16, 20 through 22, predicting this moment of resurrection and predicting our emotions, even today. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. No one can take your joy from you. Well, we see the rejoicing continue in verses 19 through 23. I'm going to read those verses for us. Look back at John 20. Let's read 19 to 23 for our last point. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Our last point this morning is that the resurrection changes fear to peace. Fear to peace. Notice the setup here. The disciples are gathered in a room. They've locked the door. They've kicked it to make sure it's locked. They've double-bolted it. They maybe put a chair in front of it. You know, they're just fearful. The Jews are going to come. They killed Jesus. Now they're going to kill us. And we're hiding for fear. We're quaking. We're scared. And yet, they think they're safe from the Jews, but no one is safe from the risen Lord Jesus. There's no lock that can keep him out. And just, bam, he's there. He's standing in their midst, basically saying, hello, what's going on here? Except for he doesn't say that. He says, what does he say? He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now, uh, that is a Jewish greeting you probably are familiar with, a Jewish greeting even to today, kind of like hello. What word would he have said to them? Shalom, very good. Shalom, peace be to you. And then, as if they needed it a second time, as often happens in Scripture, he says it again in verse 21, peace, shalom, be with you. They're fearful, he enters, he's there, and he, and he gives them peace. And they become glad. He shows them the evidence, his hands, his feet, and they're glad. Fear transforms to gladness when Jesus comes with his peace. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word peace or shalom? What image pops into your mind? Maybe you have a happy place like I do, under my pecan tree, in my Eno, peace, shalom. Or maybe you're more of a, a beach person or a mountain person, a vacation, that's peace for you. Or maybe a fictional place like Rivendell or the Shire. I think of my wife's grandfather. We call him Papa. He turned 90 this year. And what he likes to do is he likes to sit in a comfortable chair outside and he likes to watch the world go by. He's moved to Johnson City now, but this is his chair up in Arlington Heights, Illinois. And he would sit out there in front of his house, beautiful garden around him, the street there, busy with traffic, the park across the street, the elementary school, and he'd just watch. And I saw him there once and he said to me, this is like what the prophets predicted, which is an interesting thing to say. Uh, This is what he said. This is like the prophets predicted in Zechariah, where there would be such peace, war would be at an end, that in Jerusalem there would be sitting old men and old women with a staff in hand because of age. The streets of the city would be full of boys and girls playing. That's a picture of peace. That's what I think of when I hear peace. But how do we get in on that picture of peace? I mean, that's a promise for an age yet to come because in spite of everything we might try to do, we can't find peace in our hearts oftentimes. We can't be permanently on vacation. We can't just watch the world go by. There's no hiding from the lack of peace in our world today. So how can we have this peace? How can we have this shalom? How can Jesus say this to us? We base this declaration of peace on two things. First of all, he says we can experience peace in being sent and serving and living life on mission. In verse 21, he says, peace to you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is John's great commission. He says, peace to you, now go and declare this peace to a world that needs to hear it. Go forth, 
declare this peace. In verse 23, he'll talk about declaring forgiveness and even declaring judgment. This is a weighty responsibility. This is a message we can carry to a world that needs to hear of Jesus. But he also says we can have peace because of the Spirit. He says in verse 22, he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, he's given them a little taste, I believe, of what's going to come 50 days later on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit will come and dwell in the believers and dwell in each one of us to today. The Spirit not leaving us as orphans. Jesus ascends to his Father and he sends the Spirit. And so that we can go forth and declare this message of forgiveness. So if you're not experiencing peace today, think to yourself, am I sharing peace? That's one thing Jesus says that we can do. And am I in tune with the Spirit? The Spirit who brings us peace. Am I peaceful? What, what sort of things might be troubling you and how can we find the peace Jesus describes? Maybe for you it's fear of the future. I mean, what sort of pastor are we going to get? What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen with the election, the economy, the wars, the gender confusion, the next generation, my kids, my grandkids, that difficult conversation this week perhaps? There's not a lot of peace out there in the world But Jesus promises true peace. He has achieved peace between us and God because of his death and resurrection to give us peace in our own hearts. Maybe for you it's just anxiety. It's just thoughts you can't get out of your head. You just struggle with anxiety. It's very prevalent in our age today. We see more and more of this in our own hearts and in those we love. But let me encourage you, Jesus is alive, my anxious brother and sister. It's, it's often not so simple. It's simple to believe, but hard to apply. But we can start to train our brains to show truth, to not be formed by feelings, to hold fast to what is true, and to remind ourselves of the peace that Jesus provides. I know it's hard. I know from personal experience it's hard to go from that anxiety to that state of peace that Jesus promises us. That's why we need the Spirit. That's why he's given us the Spirit, to help us. And the Spirit helps us by drawing us to truth, by grounding our lives in truth. Something my wife challenged me to do to combat my own anxiety is to come up with a list of verses, fighter verses, to deploy when those anxious thoughts arise. I encourage you to do the same. And there's many, many verses we could include, many of which we've already covered here today. You could start with John 14:1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Hey, you could memorize that pretty easily. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Or 14.27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Or later, chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You can come up with a list of verses, memorize them, that can help you combat anxiety. You could read a good book. There's a a book I listened to called Anxiety, Finding God's Peace, and it's a 31-day devotional with a passage for each day. That'd be a great thing to go through personally or to do a book study with others who struggle with this. I'd be happy to put together a study, but just to immerse yourself in Scripture each day to meditate on, to tap into this peace promised to us. Or a playlist of biblical music full of truth, uh, that's very easy to do in our day and age where music is available for free online and you can find those helpful songs that comfort you uh, in those moments of anxiety. We must surround ourselves with truth. Well, there's a Facebook page called this, Daily Update on Jesus of Nazareth's Health Condition. 
Daily update on Jesus of Nazareth's health condition. That's a strange name. And every day, they post something very simple. It's this. He's alive. You're scrolling through your news feed. Man, there's drama in my personal relationships. There's drama in politics. And then, bam, all of a sudden. Here's an update, just a quick update, on Jesus of Nazareth's health condition. He's alive. He's doing all right. He's risen. He's conquered. In spite of whatever else you see on your feed, there's a nice reminder that we need daily. He is alive. Or as one person posts on Twitter every day, Jesus is alive and that changes everything about today. That's a great phrase. So in conclusion, we return where we started. Jesus' resurrection means you can be optimistic. What does Christian optimism look like? Well, it means that we have clarity in the truth in a world of chaos. It's joy in the midst of tears. Peace when everything's unsteady, fears are many. It's going to a world that needs this optimism with a can-do attitude. It's being what we described in our last sermon. It's being steadfast because of the resurrection of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, a great passage to read to see the reality of Jesus' resurrection in our lives, Paul says, hey, if Jesus is not risen, we're pitiful people. But he has. And because he's risen, we one day too will rise. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. Death is swallowed up in victory. And then he does a little taunting of death, which is a fun thing to do. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ends with this. I included it last time. I want you to say it with me. Verse 58. Say it with me. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's what the resurrection does to us. gives us steadfastness. Let's be a steadfast church. To return to our opening illustration, let me quote another founding father. What was George Washington's favorite Bible passage to quote? You'll never guess it. Uh, You could make an argument that it's one he referenced uh, almost 50 times in letters. It's another minor prophet like Zechariah, It's actually quoted in a couple different minor prophets and even in 1 Kings describing Solomon's reign. And it's this. I'll quote from Micah 4.4. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. This was Washington's heart, as he describes, for our country, for us to have peace. But we know for all the founders did, we've not experienced perfect peace. No one making us afraid over our hundreds of years of history. There's been war Less than 100 years later, a civil war. There's been unrest. There's been injustice. There's been pain. Maybe seasons, short seasons of peace, but never true peace. Never true fulfillment of this passage. But praise the Lord, this passage was not meant to apply to one country. It is meant to apply to the whole world. And it's meant to apply when the perfect king comes and sets things right. And brings perfect peace. We do not see peace in our country, our world, our personal lives, but take heart, friends. Be optimistic, says Jesus. I have overcome the world. And one day, just as I conquered death and grave and rose and ascended to my Father, I will return. I will resurrect all those who believe in me. I will resurrect all creation. I will make a new heavens and a new earth. We're finally friends. We could take our shoes off. We can lay our heavy loads down. We can sit down in the green grass under the vine that the best gardener has pruned to perfection. 
under a fig tree full of fruit that provides the perfect shade for us. And we can watch the fireworks of the glory of the risen Son of God for all eternity. And no one will make us afraid anymore. No one. No fear. Shalom to you. Peace to you, says Jesus. That is our future. That is our hope because of the resurrection. And guess what? We can experience that shalom, that peace in our hearts today as we dwell on the resurrection. That is my prayer for us all in this season. So let me pray. Let us pray for each other this week to experience this and to share it with the world that needs to hear. Father, we are so grateful for what you have done through your son. His death has brought peace with you. No condemnation do we fear. All is set right between us. And Lord, you rose him from the dead. Death has no more dominion over him. He is alive forevermore, and one day you will send him to set all things right, and we will sit and dwell with you. You are our God. You are our Father. Oh, Lord, keep us fixated on these truths. May these truths be the glasses through which we see everything, every fear, every anxiety, every moment of despair, every tear, every question. Lord, overshadow it all with your peace, with your truth, with your son's resurrection.